Well, how many of you know that in life you can learn so much about someone by looking at how they dress and looking at the things that they do? You know, there just seems to be this thing in our culture where we can pick out so much about somebody. And maybe we inappropriately judge people based on what they wear. When you see this picture, what does this tell you about the people? We've got a Packers fan in the house over here. Yeah, the cheese heads, right? The Packers. You can learn a lot about someone by what jersey they wear. You know, and especially if it's red or um, other colors. But the, gr- the green Packers, you can learn a lot about these people. How about this picture? What do you think about this guy? Mohawk, spiky, colored, punk rocker, right? He's probably got a cool leather jacket. You see the spikes on his shoulders. You know, you can learn a lot about people just by the way that they dress, the kind of music they listen to, the places that they go. How about this? Any Yellowstone fans out there? Rip is just the definition of cool. I just, you got to say, like everybody needs a pair of those sunglasses. But you, you know, you, you, maybe you come from Kansas or Nebraska or places in Missouri and you see people in a cowboy hat. I know Colorado's got a lot of cowboy culture still. You learn a lot about someone by the way they dress and the things that they do. Go talk to somebody who is a snowboarder. Go talk to, to someone who is a biker, right? They're going to just talk about cycling or whatever they do. And, you know, talk to some arrogant Chiefs fan. You can learn a lot about those people <laughs> at, at that time. But I, I think there is so much to this. But while it's easy to pick somebody out in a crowd based on what they wear or based on what they're doing, I think it also causes us sometimes to feel like we need to dress and act a certain way to fit in. And have you ever felt that way? Like you, you, you think, well, if I'm going to run with this crew or I'm going to have this new group of friends or I'm going to really get into this thing, then I have to dress and act a certain way. I know, I know for me, this probably didn't happen to any of you guys, but I remember first day of high school. Our high school was huge, like 3,000 kids. It was just 10, 11, and 12th grade. And so I was super anxious going into 10th grade and I wanted to fit in. And I had spent that whole summer watching MTV with Soundgarden and Everclear. And so I thought, I got to go in and make a statement because I got to fit in when I, when I get to high school. So I went out and bought a pair of Jinkos. Anybody remember Jinkos? <laughs> like, they're like bell bottoms, except they fan out like right here. And they're like 24 inches at the, at the base. And I bleached blonde dyed. I had hair. I did. <laughs> I bleached blonde dyed my hair right? Hydrogen peroxide. You guys know what I'm talking about. And then I had a chain wallet. And so you can look at me now and you're like, man, I can't even picture it. Just imagine the lead singer of Everclear. That's, go home and look that up later. Like that, that, that was me. And I felt like I did not fit in. I show up and everybody else wearing polos with spiked hair, like nicely spiked hair, you know? And I'm like, what am I doing? But I tried to fit in, right? And I fell out of place. I think we've all been there. Some of you have been there when you walk into a new job and you start a new school. Maybe you start hanging out with a new group of friends and all of a sudden you start to think, I got to fit in. I got to look a certain way. I got to act a certain way. I got to talk a certain way. I got to dress a certain way. I got to do the certain things that other people do. But I wonder, is that really what life should be like? That we, we need to fit in to try to be like other people or is God calling us to something more? And what about with our faith? Like when we walk into the doors of a church or we think about being part of a life group or we're joining a college ministry, whatever it is, like, do you think that you need to 
to look that way, to be accepted? Or are you afraid that when you go in, you're, you're just going to feel out of place? And so we put on a face, we put on a front, we put on an act. A few months ago, I went to Israel, had a chance to go with a group of pastors and, and tour, and it was amazing. And I remember they, they talked about how Israel is a secular state, but there's a, a you know, about a third of Israel are, are Orthodox Jews. And so you would go and you would see, you could pick the Orthodox Jews out because they would dress black suits, sweet black hats with flat bills. They'd have the long hair on the sides, and then they'd have tassels on their shirts. And it was actually, it's a pretty sweet look, actually. It's pretty cool. But you would go out and you could pick them out of a crowd. And so I remember we went down to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, and there was probably, I don't know, seven or 800 of these guys. And one of the things at the Wailing Wall is they're, they're praying and they're asking God to come back and to re- redeem them and to help fight their oppressors. And, but th- th- these guys, there's this whole routine they do. They, they have the Torah in their hand, which is, the, which is you know, the, the Old Testament scriptures, right? They got the law, first five books of the Bible, and they're like rocking. And they're saying this in Hebrew, they're saying these prayers. And they're all doing it. And what's funny is some of them got, kept getting louder and louder and louder. Like they wanted to get noticed. Like, look at me. Look how good I am. Look how good of a Jew I am. So we are walking around and we're totally dressed like Americans in New Balance tennis shoes and flat bill hats and all that stuff. And I went and bought a prayer cloth. And so I went down there looking like this, right? And all of the guys were just staring at me down. So they're all dressed. You can see in black suits. And then there's this guy that walks up who's like, who's this American, right? Who thinks he's, he's cool. But I, I just remember they looked at me like, you do not belong. I got shushed at the Western Wall praying. I was probably praying really loud, actually, in English also, which they didn't like. But they looked at me and said, you don't belong here because you don't act like us, dress like us, talk like us, look like us. And it just is a reminder of how easily we do this at church. And I think sometimes we, without even realizing it, we do this. We think that we need to look a certain way to be accepted in, uh, into a church or to be accepted in Christian circles. Or maybe we have fallen out of church for a while and now we want to get back in. And we think, man, I got to wipe all the dirt off my face and I got to put on this facade that I have it all together. So when I walk in, I can say, yeah, things are great and things are sunny. And man, we cover up the fact that life is messy and that sin is ugly and that we're all walking through challenging things. We do this in our churches sometimes because our churches, we think, well, well, yeah, we, we really need to put on this, this face that we've got it all together. And then after we act like that long enough, what do we do? We begin to put on this, put out this barrier when other people walk in. Well, if they don't look like us or talk like us or act like us, then they're not welcome here either. And it just creates this hurdle and this, this chasm between us and the people that God is calling us to invite in. And so there's got to be something better right? There's got to be a better way than acting like we have to behave to belong. You know, I think about our culture too. Think about pop culture right now. Because church has put this almost stigma out there that you have to behave to belong, at least that's the way the public sees it, our culture has responded and said, you know what? Well, that, we don't like that, so we're going to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. And we think that you should accept us and support us and encourage us in anything we do. How dare you tell me anything about the way I should live? And so you've got these two wide you know, pendulum swings. 
But I think if you look at the life of Jesus, you'll notice that it's so different the way that Jesus approached talking to people. You know, there's the, there's the scene um, when, when Jesus goes and he talks in John chapter 5 with the man who's, who, who's, um, who's lame. He had disabilities and he was by the pool of Bethesda. And he could never get in the pool in time. He thought maybe superstitiously he could get in and get healed. And Jesus walks up to him and he tells him to, to pick up his mat and walk. And so Jesus miraculously heals this guy. He picks up his mat. He'd been lame for 38 years and he walks. And then Jesus comes back later to him and he says, hey, praise God, now sin no more. You guys might remember later on in the book of John, John chapter 8, Jesus is, is, is speaking at the temple and the, these religious leaders, they bring this woman who's been caught in adultery to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, the law says that if you catch her in the act of adultery, she should be stoned to death. And Jesus, he, he looks at them, he writes something we don't know what it is in the sand. And he looks at the group and he's like, okay, well, you who are without sin cast the first stone. And each of them know that they're sinful. So they drop the, 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 and they walk away. And she's like, she's crying. It's not bubbling and all this stuff. And Jesus looks at her and says, hey, where, where's the people that can, we're gonna condemn you? And she's like, they're not here anymore. And Jesus says, well, I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. See, with Jesus, he tells us both sides are wrong. One, don't expect people to behave before they believe. How can we expect? And sometimes as Christians, we're like, well, this world's disaster. Yeah, it is. You should expect it to be. Because the majority of people don't know Jesus. They haven't had their hearts changed by Jesus. Why would we expect people to behave if they don't believe? But yet we put up this barrier that says you need to behave before you belong. That's wrong, Jesus says. But Jesus also says it's wrong just to do whatever you want to do and not care. It's wrong for us not to care how people live either, right? So what is the tension in the middle? I think we're going to learn a lot about it in the book of Acts chapter 2. Because Jesus wants us to see that we belong before, before. That we belong and then we believe. And then we let that belief drive us to behave. So notice with me, Acts chapter 2, flip with me. We are in the uh, story of Pentecost. If you were with us last Sunday, Mitch did a great job of talking about the church, how the church is born out of this. But I want to I uh, dive into a little bit about what actually happened in this moment. So we're in Acts chapter 2, and we're at what they call the, the Feast of Pentecost. Somebody say Pentecost. A lot of us, when we hear Pentecost, we think this is something that started in Acts chapter 2, but actually it isn't. Pentecost was a feast that celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. So it was an Old Testament feast. It was in a gathering, and it took place 50 days after the Passover. So during Pentecost, people would bring the first fruits of their harvest or whatever, and they would present those to God. It was this really cool moment, and they would have this big feast. And so you, you get into this place 50 days after Easter, basically, where there's people from all over. A lot of people have traveled in, they're from all over, and they're hanging out, talking, and chatting. And so it's at this feast, this Pentecost feast, that, that God does something really interesting. So 40 days before, Jesus rises from the grave. For 40 days, Jesus spends time with his disciples, teaching them and having conversations with them. And then we see 40 days after Easter, Jesus ascends to heaven. Jesus leaves them and they're like, what are we doing? What are we going to do? And Jesus is like, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And so we talked about a couple weeks ago about like, why did Jesus actually leave? Why didn't Jesus just stay forever with his church? 
And I think the idea is that Jesus knew that if, as long as Jesus was there, they were just going to sit and look to him, right? They're going to sit and look, hey, what's the play, coach? What are we supposed to do? But Jesus wanted the Holy Spirit to come to ignite his people on mission together. So Jesus leaves for 10 days. We see in the end of the book or the book of Acts chapter one, that the disciples are praying and they're, they're seeking God. They're asking God, what are you going to move? And then in Acts chapter two, we see on the 50th day, the Holy Spirit comes. Notice with me, read Acts chapter two, verse one. It says that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they, these are the disciples, there's about 120 of them, disciples, um, the ladies, Jesus' mom, Mary, all of them, there's about 120 followers of Jesus. And so that they're all together in one place. So they're, they're, they're in a rented house. It's a big place. They're kind of, at, imagine like an Airbnb kind of situation. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire entire house where they were sitting. So Luke describes this, this phenomenon that happens as there's this mighty, whatever, right? Rushing wind that comes in and it fills the room. It fills the house. Now I want you to pay attention to the words that Luke uses here because they all have an important meaning to them. So there's a really cool imagery here. So there's this, this rushing wind. And if, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter one, you, you see this, this, this picture of the, the spirit of God hovering over the waters of the deep, right? Genesis chapter, chapter one. And so there's this picture we start to see that the Holy Spirit is, is in many ways pictured as a rushing wind. There's a Hebrew word for spirit. It also means wind and breath. It's ruach. Somebody say it. Ruach. Ruach. But I like the Gotta add the so you know you're now you're talking about. It's got a het at the very end. Is it a het at the end? It's a het. So it, but it means you know spirit. It means breath. It means wind. And so we see that the spirit of God is the breath of God. It's the wind of God. It gives life. Some of you might be familiar, in John chapter 3, there's this famous exchange between Jesus and uh, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born of spirit and of water. Right? You need to have a spiritual birth too. So this idea like the spirit, and Jesus says the spirit is like the wind. You know it's there, but you can't see it, right? You're out on a trail, you're hiking, you're, you know, the wind's blowing. You know it's there, but you don't see it unless there's like Miller moths in the wind. And then, you know, it's, kids are squealing and it's nasty and, and all that stuff. But so, so picture this. And then notice this in verse three. Notice another word picture that, that Luke gives us here in Acts chapter two, verse three. It says, and, and divided tongues of fire as of, or tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And so we see the spirit of God now coming down as fire. So there's this rushing wind noise. And now there is this piece of fire, that, something that looks like fire that rests on each of the disciples here at Pentecost. Now, notice that. So we've got wind, now we have fire. Now, some of you may remember John the Baptist. You guys remember John the Baptist? Some of you may. John gets asked one time if he's the Messiah. So John was, a, was really kind of the forerunner for Jesus. He would come and he would tell people to prepare the way because God's getting ready to do something. And he was baptizing people to prepare their hearts for how God was gonna move when Jesus came. And so somebody asked John the Baptist one day, hey, are you the Messiah? And John said, no, I'm not. He said, because there's one greater than me who comes to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with, anybody remember? Fire. 
So Holy Spirit and fire. So it's, it's this picture here of wind, spirit, and fire. Now both present at the table in, at Pentecost. And so you, you see this really interesting, unique situation. And what we see here is this is the, this is the arrival. This is why Pentecost is such a big deal. Like we can't look over Pentecost. Pentecost is such a big deal because it marks the arrival of the Holy Spirit living in the lives of God's people. Okay? Now, I want you to think about this. D- depending upon your church background, you, you have different opinions. You've heard different things. Some of you may have different understandings about the Holy Spirit. And you may have grown up, grown up in a non-denominational church or more of a charismatic church or more of a conservative church. And there's no doubt that some of your opinions about when you hear the name Holy Spirit and you hear the word tongues, how you kind of process that and, and how you, you think about that. And so, but God's, you know, one of the interesting things is we, we see a lot about God the Father. We hear so much about God the Son and Jesus, but who is the Holy Spirit? We talk about the Holy Spirit, not as much as we should, but you hear the Holy Spirit. But there's a mysterious nature to the Holy Spirit. Like if I ask you right now, hey, tell your neighbor three things about the Holy Spirit. What are you going to say? You're like, he's, he's cool, right? <laughs> like he does cool stuff. Like he, he, he moves mountains and, you know. Like, right, like we, you, you can't really pinpoint it down because the Holy Spirit is sort of mysterious. And here's one th- th- thing that's really interesting. And this is why we talk, you know, we talk about just being in the word because you see a lot about this idea of the Trinity. So we see that the Bible never uses the word Trinity, but it's kind of like the flux capacitor in Back to the Future. You just know it works, right? Like, how does it work? Doc Brown doesn't tell us, but we know it works. And so we see that there's pictures that we see God revealed to us in three people. We see in Deuteronomy, in the Shema, that God says, I am one. But yet, we see God revealed to us as the, our Heavenly Father, as Jesus the Son and Savior and the Holy Spirit. And so, how do we wrestle with this? It's not, it's not super easy to get your mind around one God presented to us in three persons, but we see that there are, it's a triune God. Somebody tra- say triune. It's fun, isn't it? Triune is kind of fun to say. So, it's the triune God. There's, there's three gods, and they're revealed, you know, with one God, I'm sorry, one God. Say one God. Don't let me confuse you. One God revealed to us in three persons. And so the Holy Spirit is, is part of that, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'm trying to think of a way to share this with you, okay? Now this is, I've been racking my brain. This is not perfect, okay? But I got two word pictures to show you how the, tr- the Trinity works together. Okay, so h- how many of you guys work in the corporate world? If you do, how many of you are familiar with CEO, COO, Chief Operating Officer, COO, CEO, Chief Executive Officer, and the Chairman of the Board represents the owners, okay? So imagine that word picture. So your Heavenly Father is like the Chairman of the Board. He's the owner. Jesus, the Son, is like the Chief Executive Officer. Everything falls under his responsibility. And the Holy Spirit's like the Chief Operating Officer. He is the one that makes things happen, Right? Okay, how about this picture? Any, anybody science? I know we got some science people in here. We got a scientist, a couple of science teachers. So think of the atomic structure of an atom, okay? In God's design, God loves threes. The, the atom is made up of a nucleus, which is made up of two elements, a proton and a neutron. And then there's the electrons that cycle around it. So three parts of an atom, okay? What's your body made of? Water, also atoms, right? <laughs> 
And so you have, is a trick question. So you've got these three parts. So the proton is what forms the nucleus. The neutron is what gives it um, electricity. And then the, um, the neutron is what binds it together. I'm still learning. And the electron is what gives it electricity, right? So an atom can work because all three pieces are working together. See that? They each have their own distinct job. They're each equal. You pull one of them out, it doesn't work. So think of the Trinity like an atom, God's design. And you know what the Bible says that we are made in the image of God? We are made up of atoms with three parts. Isn't that cool? That might be the only thing you remember from today. But remember that. That's cool. Remember that. So in Pentecost, you have this really cool thing because now you see that the Holy Spirit's going to relate differently with us than he has in the past. Um, In in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, pre-Jesus, the Holy Spirit would move in and out of humanity human agency. He would come in, he'd move through David, he'd slide over here and he'd do something through Saul. He'd work over the nation of Israel and their army. He would do these things. But we see now marking the new covenant. When we say new covenant, we mean that Jesus came and fulfilled everything in the old covenant. And now the new covenant is a covenant of grace, saved by grace through faith. So now we don't have to do anything to earn Jesus' favor. Isn't that good? So good. So now in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon the hearts of God's people. The new, the, the new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes and lives with God's people. And so notice, notice what happens. This is the mark. So you guys have probably never heard the wind rushing of the Holy Spirit. You guys have probably never seen tongues of fire standing on somebody's head. We're not even sure if that's what it looked like, but that's the picture. It's because this is a unique event in history. This is the mark of the Holy Spirit coming. And notice what he does. Notice what the Holy Spirit does in verse 4. This is, this is super cool. Check this out. So in verse 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. So imagine. Imagine you're in Jerusalem. You live in Rome. And you travel to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost and you're hanging out in the marketplace and you're buying, you know, knickknacks for your kids or you're shooting dice or whatever you're doing in Jerusalem to make time. And you start hearing somebody speaking in your language. But you look over and it's a Jewish guy from Galilee. But yet the person next to you is from Macedonia, speaks in a different language, and they're hearing the same thing too. This is a really cool, unique event. So here's what's going on. There's about 120 people and they're in this house and they've been in one big place and now they start speaking these other languages. Verse five, and now they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Now, bewildered is, is, is an awesome word, right? It's not like they were a little confused or they were questioning. They were like bewildered, like jaw dropped. Holy, what what is going on? And they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in his own native tongue? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And so you got all these people who are like, now they're perked up. Now they're moving close. Now they're listening. And they're hearing these Galilean disciples of Jesus speaking in all of these different languages. And so here's the interesting thing. We, most Bible scholars think that if there's 120 of them, we don't really know how the spread is. But it's, it wasn't necessarily like 
Peter was speaking in Aramaic and John was speaking in Greek and James was speaking in English, you know? It was more like they were just speaking and then God was translating it into the ears of all the people hearing. Isn't that amazing? Now, it could have been that they were speaking these languages they didn't know too. Um, but there's a lot of thoughts that it's, it's, you know, it's like mid-air translations. But either way, whether they were speaking a language they didn't know or that it was, God was translating it so everybody could hear it in their own language, this is an amazing situation because they're preaching the gospel of Jesus. They're talking about how God is moving and it's drawing everybody in into this place. So I think there's a question we have to ask here that many of you are wondering is does God still do this today? Anybody wonder that? Anybody hear tongues and you start to wonder, is is this around? Is this something that exists? And the moment I said that, you guys all got really awkward, right? Like tongues are one of those things that are are maybe not the most comfortable topic. And some of you are going, what's he going to do here, right? Like, is he going to, how's this going to go? But I, I do think it's important that we have an understanding of tongues. And here's what we know. Romans chapter 10. God says, Romans chapter 11, God says that um, his ways are higher than our ways, that he is unsearchable. So we're, we're not necessarily going to understand. There's mysteries. There's so many mysteries in, in, in the word of God. But what can we pull away from this that helps us to understand? Okay? So I'm going to try to do my best to help us understand that. So what, what we see here is that, that God, in this case, is using tongues to overcome the language barrier right? We got people from all these different nations who speak all these different languages. They probably speak Hebrew too, but, but, but they're coming and now they're hearing the gospel priests in their language, which is amazing. So they're coming in and they're hearing it. And so we, we have to see that God is using tongues. He's using natural languages here to help people understand God's word. And you might wonder, does this happen today? There's amazing stories out there about how God still can overcome language barriers. That you can be on the mission field somewhere and all of a sudden speak a language you don't know, or you can be on and speaking your language and all of a sudden they hear you speaking in theirs. So it, it's incredible that this does still happen today. So you wonder, well, is this what speaking in tongues means, right? When you look at speaking in tongues in scripture, is this what it means? I think in a lot of cases, you do see this, that tongues is referring to speaking in an actual language that somebody else speaks that I can speak through. But yet there is also the mysterious nature of speaking in tongues. I I know some amazing people that in their quiet time speaking with God, they will speak in like a prayer language with, with God in a tongue. That's not their native tongue, but they recognize it as something that's given from the Holy Spirit. And so there's a little bit of mystery with tongues. Here's what we see with tongues. Speaking in tongues, speaking in another language is a gift given from God. It's not a evidence of your faith. Does that make sense? There are some who try to say, well, to prove you're saved, you need to speak in a tongue. I don't think we see that anywhere in God's word. I think we do see if you're speaking in another language, a tongue, it is a gift given from God for a specific purpose, whether that's to share the gospel in another language or it's a prayer language that you have with the Lord. Does that make sense, guys? You guys are like, no, it it does not make sense. Slow roll, right? Slow roll. We're going to get there. So 
Um, but we, what we do see here, as we try to pull this, this back a little bit and try to see, was we see the disciples being empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to, to share the gospel of Jesus. And here's why I want to bring this back around. So imagine that you think that to be a follower of Jesus that you have to fit a certain mold. So in the early church, if you were in, in, in Jewish culture, if you wanted to become a Jew, you had to get circumcised, you had to follow all the dietary laws, you had to stop eating shrimp, like that would be enough on its own, right? No bacon, wrapped jalapenos, right? Like that's, I'm, I don't know, Jesus, I mean, you're great, but I'm just kidding, right? So, but you had to do all these things to get converted to, to Judaism, right? It was really strict. Again, you had to fit the mold. And so God is doing something here by sending the Holy Spirit and them speaking in all these languages so everyone can hear. And it is this, that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel isn't just for the Jews. The gospel isn't just for those who speak Hebrew. The gospel isn't for just for those who dress a certain way and act a certain way and look a certain way. The gospel is for everyone, for all languages and for all cultures. And I don't want you to miss how big this is. If we as Christians put on this facade that we got it all together, then we're going to tell everybody else that you have to have it all together too to be a part of the church. If we have churches act like you have to behave a certain way because before you can come and belong, then what are we going to do? We're going to tell people that there's some made up fictitious action that you have to take place. We believe what Ephesians chapter two says, that we are saved by grace through faith and it is not of ourselves. It is the work of God. It is not us. You and I, we cannot earn our salvation. We can never be good enough on our own. And so we see that the gospel is for everyone. You want to know what the problems of the world are all about? Racism, sexism, classism, all the other isms. What's the problem with the isms? Brokenness and sin. Because we think you need to be like me to belong. And Jesus says, no, the gospel is for everyone. I came for everyone. I forgive everyone. Everyone who asks. So it's this beautiful picture, I think. You know, I think if you look at the way that Jesus lived, you see that that this is marked by his lifestyle. That Jesus was constantly hanging out with people who didn't behave. I mean, who did Jesus spend his time with? Who did he get criticized for hanging out with? Jesus always got criticized for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and people who didn't look the part, people who lived messy lives and he ate with them and he, and he sat with them and he had conversations with them and everybody looked at him and said, Jesus, how can you do that? Don't you know what kind of person that is? And Jesus said, I do, but I'm inviting them in to belong. They don't have to behave before they can belong with me. I'm inviting them in to belong. Because it's through that belonging with Jesus that we see that he truly is the answer to the holes in our heart and to the questions we ask. And it truly is that time with Jesus, belonging with Jesus, leads to a changed life through believing in Jesus and who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. My friends, we don't belong because we act apart. We belong because Jesus has welcomed us in. Because truth be told, guys, we can never meet the standard that God requires on our own because we are messy and we are broken. But praise God for Jesus and God's grace. So back to this picture now. Imagine this. So there's this huge crowd that's gathered around. And in verse 12, we see that the crowd starts to wonder, well, what's going on? All these people must be drunk. And so they actually look and they say, these Galileans are just a bunch of drunks. In verse 12. 
He said, they're filled with new wine. Now, in those days, alcohol was different than it is today, and so you'd have to drink all night long. So in the morning, that's when somebody would actually be, be drunk, would be tipsy. And so Peter stands up and he says, guys, no, no, no. It's only nine in the morning. Like these guys haven't been drinking. But what you've witnessed right now is something powerful that has happened, that has come from the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes Joel, not Joel Osteen. He quotes Joel, the prophet, in verse 16. And notice what he says. He says this, but what you've heard was uttered to the prophet Joel. In the last days, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And so Joel said one day God's going to pour out his spirit. And this is it. Pentecost. This is the moment when we see that now the Holy Spirit isn't just guiding a nation or an army. The Holy Spirit is living in the hearts of God's people. Think about that, that you are comprised of soul, spirit, and body, and your spirit is now connected with that of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? And so we get up and we see Peter gives this, this sermon. Peter gives his Pentecost sermon, and I won't read the whole thing. I'm just going to give you a couple, a couple verses here um, as we get close to wrapping up, because Peter gives this sermon, and God uses it in amazing ways. And it's a reminder that you're, what you say doesn't have to be all flowery and, and, and powerful. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that changes hearts. Notice what Peter says in verse 22. He says, mighty, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 32, this God Jesus raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing and let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, this is so good, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, whom Jesus you have crucified. I love it. Peter says, look, here's the simple gospel. Jesus came and died for our sins. And just as he promised, when we say yes to him, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in our hearts. And you're seeing that this is true right now by seeing and hearing these followers of Jesus speaking in these languages. And notice what happened in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were all cut to the heart. Like they heard this simple gospel. He wasn't fun, full of funny stories and jokes and they didn't have to have all the answers. It was a simple gospel. And look at the rest of verse 37. And they were cut to the heart and, Peter, and they said to Peter, well, brothers, what should we do? Don't you love Peter? He didn't even tell him what to do, right? He just like gives the gospel and he doesn't even tell him how to respond. He didn't know yet about altar calls that came later. So, so Peter's like, guys, Jesus is amazing. And they're all like, well, cool. What do we do about it, right? Like, how should we live differently then? And then notice what he says. He says, repent, verse 38, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Again, guys, the gospel is for everyone. And he says, repent and believe. 
Now, is this really interesting though? There is a debate about this. Like repent and believe, which one is it? Is it both? Like there's, some of you may have grown up in churches or faith traditions where you say, well, it's, it's, it's repent and believe, or I'm sorry, repent and be baptized. And so which one is it? Like, do I have to get baptized right now? And I've got some buddies that if you say, I want to trust Jesus right now, they're like, where's the water, right? Like, let's go. We don't want the devil to get you, right, real quick. So which one is it? So I, I think there's something I don't want us to miss here as we get close to closing, and it's this, that, that what Peter is saying is, is that we need to repent. Repentance is when we say, God, my way is not the right way, and I've learned that because my life is a mess and I'm full of brokenness. And your way is the right way because you sent Jesus here to give his life for me and he gives me new life when I say yes to him. So I repent. I turn from thinking my way is right and I turn to him. That's faith. That's believing. That's trusting that he is Jesus. Getting baptized is the way we symbolize it and show it. And so what Jesus is saying, or what, what, um, I'm sorry, what Pete, whoever his name is, Peter <laughs> is saying here, is that we are called to simply believe and follow. That Jesus calls us to simply believe and follow. We believe, we repent, we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And we follow. And one of the ways we follow is we get baptized to say that we believe in him. We follow by reading his word and spending time with his people. We follow by seeing that what he tells us in his word that's best for us really is best for us. So we simply believe and follow. And notice verse 40. We'll close with this. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people said yes to Jesus right there. Isn't that awesome? And the church was born. And that's what Mitch talked about last week. What does it look like to be a church of devoted people that aren't just fans of Jesus, but follow Jesus? Here's what I, I kind of want to wrap up with this idea is this, is that God isn't calling us to behave, to belong. He's just calling us to belong so that we can learn to believe. And then once we believe, then we are freed to behave, not to earn, not to try to show that we deserve it, but because Jesus gives us the power that we need to live out the life he's called us to live. And it's all based on the beautiful simplicity that Jesus came and died for us. As I invite the, the band back on stage here, I want to tell you a quick story as we close. I, I met a guy recently named Jeff Scott. And Jeff works for a company called International Cooperating Ministries. And what they do is they build churches in the hard-to-reach places. And so in the late 90s, they wanted to reach an area in northern Cambodia. Here's a picture of the Kampong Tom province. And so they send a missionary in, and he goes to this little village, and he starts to talk about Jesus. And everybody is really receptive. Everybody's leaning in. All of a sudden, people start getting saved. Nearly everybody in this little village gets saved. And the, the missionary is wondering, like, what is going on? This is really unique. I've never seen this happen before. And so he says, it's almost like you guys have been waiting for me to get here. And there's this little sweet grandma that kind of shuffles to the front of the line. And she said, we have been. And she began to tell the story. Some of you may know the name Pol Pot. In the late, in 60s and the 70s, Pol Pot and, uh, and his army, uh, the Khmer Rogue army, began to just mass genocide villages in Cambodia. 
And they would go from village and city and it was a horrible, horrible situation. Well, in 1979, they made it to this little village. And they came into the village and they began to round everybody up. And they took them outside of town and they gave them shovels and they had them build a grave. And they, they knew what was coming. This was the end. This is the same thing the army did in every other village. And so they build, they dig their grave out and they stand there. And then the, the army that tells them to face the grave. And so they're standing there and they're crying and they're weeping because they know this is their last moment on earth. And so they're praying to Buddha. They're praying to their ancient ancestral gods. Some of them were praying to demonic forces. And there was one voice that started praying a story that they heard their mom tell them when they were a child about the God who hung on the cross. And they said, the God who hung on the cross, rescue us. And within a few minutes, everybody starts praying to the God who hung on the cross. And now you have the whole village standing there facing the marked grave praying, I pray to the God who hung on the cross. And then it got really quiet. And one by one, they started to turn and look behind them where the army was. And the jungle was empty. The army had left. And so the grandma says to the missionary, we've been waiting 20 years for somebody to come tell us about the God who hung on the cross. Guys, that is what God wants us to hear, is that Jesus loved you so much, he hung on the cross for you, to take your sin, to forgive you of everything in your past, present, and future. And then he rose from the grave so that you can have the Holy Spirit in your life and lead you to a place to live the life you were created to live. So let's be the people who live that life today, tomorrow, and every day that follows. Would you pray with me?